Welcome to the World Nomads podcast, delivered by World Nomads, the travel lifestyle and insurance brand. There's something about the islands here that touches people's souls. Hopefully we're making an impact in the world that people will stop killing and culling sharks. It looked like snot and it smelled bad, but then let that put you off. It was good for you. <laughs> what else in the world are you going to see the condor three meters right in front of you? No, absolutely. Mm. I'm not sure Rock if I want to see the out. condor three meters in front of me. <laughs> so many things in our society that are throwaway and we see those things on our beaches, on our coastline. Has anyone ever pooped themselves? <laughs> Sometimes the Germans can come off as cold. Uh, I think it's important to remember what has happened, but also look forward to the into the future and, and be positive about it. And that's, I think, what Germans are. It offers travelers the opportunity to teach English to children and experience the Panamanian... Oh, that's going to be... <laughs> the... Speaking of teaching yeah. English... <laughs> I've got to learn to speak it. We were all told that you can't take a leak into the river. You can't <laughs> urinate into the river mm. because there's a parasite that will swim up your urine stream. Mm. Yeah, Phil, um, <laughs> you... Uh... An idiot? <laughs> <laughs> it's not your usual travel podcast. It's everything for the adventurous independent traveller. Sorry, guys. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Can we stop? Sorry. Going to have to go again. Sorry. Yeah. My fault. <laughs> Complete pros here, you know. <laughs> exactly. All right, hang on. Here we go again. Sorry. Take 300. <laughs> yep, that's what it's like behind this well-oiled machine. That is the World Nomads podcast. Welcome to the best of part two. We're looking back at not only 2018, but some of the highlights from when we first launched in 2017. So celebrating our first year was a huge milestone. 40-something episodes, Phil, in the podcast world that is akin to a baby rolling over for the first time. And we're celebrating as well. Uh, look, just over a year, and the thing I think I like best about the podcast is how well it's been received. I've been given some really lovely compliments from pe- from people about how it's inspired them to do more travel and go further than, and go to places that they would never have contemplated previously. And for me, that's job done. Tick. Um, in December, I brag a little bit here, we hit a record of 11,000 listens for the month. Which is really pleasing because, you know, anybody knows anything about podcasting, it's kind of the long game. It takes a long time to grow an audience and it's a slow build. So I'm really happy that so many of you find the podcast interesting and entertaining enough to keep coming back. And please do keep telling your friends about us. Uh, um, Kim, I'm a member of a couple of podcast Facebook groups and recently another member asked you, who have you been able to speak to through the podcast that you wouldn't normally have been able to meet? And people were naming all sorts of famous people they've spoken to. And I chimed in. I went, all of them? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely every one of them. I may have bumped into some of them at you know, a conference or you know, through the World Nomads content creation process, but I, I really do feel very lucky to have been able to have a conversation with so many you know, fabulous, knowledgeable and... A down, downright vivacious people. It's um, it's been fantastic. And by the way, if you ever do meet me out at a conference <laughs> or you have a dinner party with me, that's what I'm like. I'm going to yeah. ask all those questions. It's it's and being able to do that as part of your job is just unbelievably lucky. Couldn't agree more. Now, one of your favourite interviews was James Barkman, who incidentally was one of our amazing nomads. The bonus episode that we launched this year, featuring or last year, sorry, featuring travellers who demonstrate discovery, connection, transformation, fear, and love. Uh, James is a documentary and editorial photographer. Uh, this year, he lived off his 1996 Suzuki DR650 and rode from Alaska to Patagonia. 
uh, but he's also previously road tripped across the Pacific Northwest uh, of America in an orange beaten up VW camper van. And I loved the fact that he gave it a name. Yeah, I named it Melody, and that's her first name. And her last name is Bark Van. So my <laughs> last name is Bark Man. So I thought it only fitting to, of course, name her Melody Bark Van. So that's her name. Beautiful. You found it on Craigslist, but I've got a girlfriend who has one that she's named Gidget, and Gidget is always breaking down. What about Melody? Uh, I would say the same for Melody, for sure. (laughs) When I actually bought her on Craigslist, she broke down on the way home. I had about a (laughs) three-and-a-half-hour drive. And at the time, I really knew nothing about vans. Um, I wanted to learn, of course, but I had no experience. And she broke down and let me set for quite a few hours, and I had no idea what to do. But I think I, it kind of, it was only, it was only right that she broke down right away because there's been countless others. <laughs> Seriously, if you want to learn about motor vehicle maintenance, get a VW camper van. Yeah, and learn very quickly. I call it Zen in the art of Volkswagen maintenance. Yep. <laughs> because I mean, I'm sure we're all familiar with the book Zen in the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, yep. but it really teaches you so much more about, you know, the actual mechanics. It teaches you patience and you know, just kind of ingenuity and all of that. So and, and how I'm to, grateful and, for that. Sure. And how to swear. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I've had uh, quite a few frustrating times with her. All right. Now, let's. can we just leap back a bit in the story uh, about you and Melody? So you, you were living in Pennsylvania when you, uh, when you bought the camper van and you had this idea of going over to the west coast of America. Just tell us about that. Where did that idea come from? Why were you motivated to do that? Um, I think it's kind of gr- growing up in the States in like a small rural area of Pennsylvania, it's kind of like the american dream to just go west you know and do and do a big road trip and i think as long as i can remember i was like i'm gonna grow up and i'm gonna you know grab a whole bunch of buddies and buy an old rickety van or something and just drive west and see what happens and as i got older um i found the van you know got interested in in volkswagens got the van and all of a sudden i was like wait i can actually do this and not just keep talking about it but i can hop in and drive west so that's more or less what i did um and i think yeah there's kind of like when growing up on the east coast of the states there's kind of this allure to the west coast (laughs) and it definitely attracted me and yeah i kind of picked up and left off and have been living out there ever since for the most part we've watched a video of you um driving melody and there are some pretty challenging weather conditions as well but i note that um in the book phil he's come uh, overcome those james you've got a pot belly stove inside melody <laughs> yes i do is that not dangerous like no, do you get no, smoked it's out or? no 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 he's, he's also got yeah, tell us how you adapt it, but you've got an exhaust, so the smoke goes yeah, outside. Yeah, look, of the, the van. smoke's going into his, directly back into his van. <laughs> <laughs> is, is that the case? Yeah, yeah. Yes, it is. I don't actually know if it's legal. I never really found out. I've been stopped a couple times by cops, and they were kind of always surprised by it. But I've never gotten in trouble. So as far as legality goes, I guess I've. I think it's legal, <laughs> but as practically speaking i mean it's it kind of just started as an idea um when i moved into my van it was just 
I mean, the East Coast winters get really cold, and I didn't want to deal with propane heat because it's a little dangerous with, like, the poisoning. And I didn't have electricity or anything like that. So I was like, man, I'll just get a wood stove. That would work perfectly. And it kind of just started from there. So I found the wood stove on Craigslist as well, (laughs) only fitting that that I did, and kind of just put it in and it's been in there ever since so it's kept me warm many a cold night but listen tell us a bit about that i mean you know you had a regular job in a mechanical workshop but you decided that wasn't the life for you yes absolutely i i think it's important to have um in different seasons of life to have stability and you know financial stability and things like that and at the time i was working the job i knew it was valuable and i wanted to save money and learn different skills and things like that but i knew that that wasn't really what i wanted to do it was kind of more of a means to a next step and so i worked that job for a few years uh, quite a few years and then when i had saved a lot of money and kind of had more of an idea of what i wanted to do when i quit I kind of just put in my notice and quit and drove west. So cool. For the full interview with James and all of our guests actually in this episode, check out show notes. Now, coincidentally, one of my favourite chats in 2018 was also an amazing nomad, Sarah Davis. She's currently paddling the entire length of the Nile. You can follow her on Instagram. She posts daily, including videos at Paddle the Nile. We were lucky enough to catch her before she jetted off to Uganda. And obviously the first question is why? Oh, look, it was it was something... I'd seen a couple of people who'd done some first and I was at this point where I was, you know, really happy with life and life was great, but it was just that still something missing and that fulfilment and that, that sort of need for more. Anyway, so I saw a couple of people who'd done first. One was Damien Ryder who paddled a prone board from Coolangatta to Bondi and was the first to do it, yeah. And then um, Helen Skelton, she's a kids or a TV presenter in the UK, and she kiked the Amazon. And um, neither of them were sort of, that wasn't their primary sports or anything like that. And it just gave me this sort of, you know, like, wow, how good would that be to do a first? Um, and because they were, you know, they weren't your classic sort of adventurers, and it was just like, well, maybe I could do something like this. So then I started researching as to what it could be. I really wanted it to be um, paddling based because that's my yeah my sport. And we can of- tell by your arms, <laughs> nicely defined. Yeah, I used to I used to say when I was going to the gym a few years ago, and they said, "What's your goal? I want arms like Lisa Curry Kenny." Thanks. Um, let's go back then to why these great arms. What, what do you? Uh, you're a kayaker. Or, yeah. yeah. So, but you've competed around the world. Yeah. So I started getting. I got into kayaking um, through the surf club. So I joined North Bondi Surf Club, and I've been a member there. And I started getting into the competing side. Um, started on the boards, and then got onto the surf skis. And um, running used to be my sport, but sort of found out I've got arthritis in the hip. Then I blew my meniscus, and it was like, okay, I need something else. So that's when I really got into the to the kayaking and the surf skis and um, went from doing all the clubby sort of stuff to then doing more of the ocean races because they tend to be longer and I'm, a, I'm more of an endurance athlete and I like that. So Competitive girl too. Yeah. Sounds good. <laughs> I'm really competitive sometimes, <laughs> not smart always. 
Um, so yeah, and I just I love it. It's and doing it here in in Sydney, you know, out on the ocean in the harbour, it's just the most spectacular place to go and train. So it doesn't make it too difficult. And none of the obstacles that you would expect in the Nile. Feel fair enough. Can I just say for our uh, people listening, not in Australia, what a club he is. We have oh. surf life saving clubs here. So these are volunteer surf lifesavers. Many would many of you would have seen the TV program Bondi Rescue. The guys in the blue things they're the professionals. The blokes in the and the women as well in the yellow and red they're the volunteer surf lifesavers because they're in a surf lifesaving club. They're known as clubbies. Yeah, there it's, you go. It is very it's Australian part of Australian culture, isn't it? It is. To, to I'm a clubby at Maroubra. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Good work. Get that in. Get that in. Yep. Um, so you've got so you've you're a competitive kayaker, um, about to paddle the Nile, and the first woman to do so. Yes. Yep. But you'll be with a team. Yeah, look, there'll be people with me all the way. I'll be the only one doing it, doing it from start to, to finish. And, and the teams will mix, partly dependent on the kind of waters that we're going through. So you've got some big rapids uh, through Rwanda and Tanzania and then also in Uganda. So we'll be rafting through those. So you've got a team of people in your raft. Um, then once you get through there, well, you've got Lake Victoria in between, um, which will be kayaking. And then through South Sudan, Sudan and Egypt, it's then kayaking all the way there and there I'll have it will be either you know guides with me security or or local paddlers as well so when I went to Sudan and Egypt last year I got to meet some of the kayakers there and went out they took me out paddling they were amazing and um and quite a few of them are keen to be part of it which I really want to have local people involved with it all the way you know it's very much a shared a shared experience uh, for people listening the how many kilometers 6,853 <laughs> <laughs> yeah so the prep the prep actually surprising that a lot of the prep is is off the water i mean i've got a good base with my paddling and and that is enough you know i will build up gradually on the expedition to to doing the sort of the 40 to 50 k's a day which is what i'm expecting there's no point in training for that for months beforehand because the risk of overuse injuries and just being over it it's just yeah it's not going to add the value so physical preparation is probably more around the gym and, and making sure building up the muscle which will no doubt catabolize during the during the trip and then it's all the other skills so i've done remote first days so i had two days of remote first aid training um three days of swift water rescue technician um my easter was spent on a four-day wilderness survival course um krav maga self-defense training yeah there's it's been a lot of of that sort of probably more where i'm really focusing my my preparation awesome i can report phil series halfway through her effort and while she's had some tough times she has equally had exhilarating moments and she breathes a sigh of relief paddling through Rwanda and tanzania when she sees fishermen because that means there are fewer hungry hippos oh, yeah most dangerous animal in africa look i'm not sure if any of the world nomads are planning anything quite as audacious as that in 2019 but let's find out where they do plan to travel hi i'm chris noble uh, i'm the general manager of worldnomads.com i have a couple of destinations i want to go to which uh, is Colombia um, and Greenland. Hi, I'm uh, Brendan. I'm uh, an editor working at World Nomads. I have. I want to go to Scandinavia in May. Yeah, going to go to Norway, uh, uh, touch down in Oslo and Oslo, and then uh, drive all the way through to Bergen. Hi, I'm Beck. I work for World Nomads, and I work on the scholarships and marketing campaigns. Um, I'm going to go visit a few friends in London who are over there working holiday visa. 
And then I definitely want to check out a bit of Eastern Europe while I'm over that way too. Maybe Albania or Montenegro. Oh, I'm Pierce from World Nomads. I'm the uh, campaign marketing manager. Uh, I'm actually going over to work in Cork in Ireland for six months in March, so I'm looking forward to that. Hi, I'm Ian from World Nomads. Uh, I work on CMS development, uh, write all the nice website-y things you see. Hopefully for Christmas or after Christmas, we're heading down to Tasmania to take the kids around there. And travel plans for 2019, I'm planning to go to Easter Island again and take the kids with us. Hi, I'm Diane from World Nomads, looking after our lovely emails that we send out to our lovely customers. Home sweet home, going home twice in the year, visit family, family events. You can't work in the travel industry and not have a love for travel. My aspiration in 2019 is to explore Scotland and Ireland. Beautiful. It's yeah. great. And actually, parts of it remind me of Australia because it's, um, you know, the heather and what have you, there's low vegetation and it's quite barren with rounded hills and it reminds me a bit of some of the Australian cool. countryside. Now, what about you? You were planning at one point Disneyland because there was pressure from the kids? Yeah. No, we've managed to talk them out of that, which is great. Uh, but I have a birthday coming up next year which has a zero in it, so mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not revealing which one. No. Um, and I'm a huge Italian f- Italophile. Yep. I love Italy. So I think we might find ourselves, um, you know, a nice villa or something on Sardinia. I've never Ooh. been to Sardinia. I think I might try that out because it's... Yeah, and that sounds nice. But what's the compromise for the kids? <laughs> Shut up. We're taking you. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's get back into it. Another of your favourite interviews, this is you, Phil, was yep. one of our first with Mike Carter, who undertook an Inuit adventure in Canada's far north. Yeah, I like this chat for a couple of reasons. The first being his description of heading to the toilet and going from a man to a snack. Well, well, I think the, the very fact that your your little plane lands and you're immediately surrounded by heavily armed men is, um, it, and you're actually in the middle of nowhere is a sure sign that something's rather worrying. And um, and I'd, I'd, we'd been in this little plane, and and um, I, I kind of needed to go to the toilet, and um, and I asked one of the guides, "Is there anywhere I could go?" And there's there are all these disused old Cold War hangars there, and they said, "Oh, you can go behind the building." Um, and um, and he said, but I need to come with you uh, with this huge gun, you know. Um, and and he, and he was saying, you can't take your eye off the horizon or the landscape for a second there because the bears, not just the polar bears, but these barren ground black bears that have, that have adapted to survive there, they're ambush animals um, because they can't, because there is no trees because it's above 55 degrees and there are no trees. There's no hiding place for them or very, you know, they're, they're traditional methods of stalking animals. So they have to hide behind a rock, and uh, they're very opportunistic, mm. and they're very patient. So, um, so I, you know, I, I wasn't terrified because I was with these extremely competent, highly trained people who know what to do, but um, you, you, you quickly begin to realise that you're, you're not in a benign you know, you're not in your Sydney apartment. You're not in your kind of London apartment here. This is, you, it, it really contextualizes man's place in the grand scheme of things when um, you realize you're a kind of insignificant speck. As I said in the piece, you know, I'd gone from being a man to a snack. A really great opportunity to relieve yourself quickly or just decide that you can <laughs> hang on. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But it's not, so I don't, it wasn't, terrifying it's just it's that thing that oh okay 
you know, I, I don't live here. This isn't, you know, this, I'm not familiar with this place. I'm quite helpless. You know, I, you look at these magnificent mountains and, and you see polar bears and black bears running everywhere. And then when you finally get to the camp, there's a 10,000 volt electric fence around the camp. Um, and, and you realize that this is not really a joke, you know, that you, you know, if you stray out and they, and, and one of the first things they do when you get to the base camp in Saglek, um, field, uh, Saglek water is, um, they sit you down and show you a film of, um, of polar bears and, um, how to tell if a polar bear is, is, um, agitated, just merely curious or hungry. And you sort of studying all these different films of polar bears to try and judge their behavior. And what you should do if a polar bear approaches you and what you should do to avoid encountering a polar bear. And, um, and that's the, literally the first thing they do when you get off the boat. You need to watch this film. It's a bit like, you know, it's a bit like getting on an airplane and going through the kind of safety talk by the cabin crew. Um, but, but the consequences being slightly more dire, really. That was scary. Scary. <laughs> yeah. Scary. Now, sometimes we have to do interviews at home because of the time difference and the availability of our, of our guests yep. who we value and love, thank you, and respect. Um, and I did that with Mike, but it can go wrong, particularly at 11 o'clock at night after a few wines, Phil. To give up, you can certainly keep on going. Awesome. But what about Albania? Well, all of my journeys and all of my expeditions have been rooted. <laughs> How about Albania? Albania. How on earth did I think that was ever going to get You through? actually sent that off to be edited, didn't you? Well, I was half gone. <laughs> I was half gone. And then Nigel, who puts it all to, together yeah. for us. You may want to rethink this he one, He sent Kim. it, yeah, and the message is... <laughs> Have a listen. <laughs> I'm listening. I think, yeah, it's Oh, this is really interesting. Oh, and then I get to that. I think, no, nah, I have to do it again. That's just, <laughs> that's so bad. No issues, though, with Mike, as we discussed Inuit tourism in Canada's far north. My experience, very limited experience of Canada and the way it treats its Indigenous people, it, it has been a very, very positive one. It seems to me, and I don't know because you're in and out of these places and you don't really know, but the... The, the, a lot of the uh, infrastructure in in Labrador seems to be owned by uh, Inuit companies, like the airline and the barges that bring um, food up and down that coast to these remote communities, and the base camp where I stayed. And nine out of ten of the full-time staff in the camp were Inuit, and that, they want to make that a hundred percent, and it probably is now. And the guides were nearly all Inuit, and I got the sense that the Canadian government are, are, are doing as much as they can uh, in terms of reparation for, for the kind of for the for the for the catastrophes that were visited on indigenous people there in the 1950s um, when the forced relocations off their land in northern Labrador and down to alien settlements for them but the pain of that is still very very evident when you speak to uh, Inuit there now I think there's I, th I think it's I think it's difficult um, this kind of cultural tourism because you know there's there's a mutuality there's a, there's a there's a there's a there's a kind of symbiosis there's a two way learning process there as long as there's absolute deep respect for for that host culture and uh, and I think the the Anglo Saxon world the kind of English language speaking world we've been so guilty for so long with that kind of um, cultural imperialism when we go into 
into developing world countries that that this is rather sort of quaint, antiquated way of living that needs to be preserved in aspic, but we're much more superior, inherently superior and, and evolved than these people. But I do see a move. Um, you, you know, people such as Jared Diamond, who are, you know, writing fabulous books like The World Until Yesterday, um, that um, look at... Um, the way traditional people organize themselves and, and see that we've, we've forgotten so much about how humans as a species organize and learn and thrive. You know, far from kind of cultural imperialism, I just see these people as, as, as a much better version of us, really, you know, in their respect for the land. And, um, so it's, it's simultaneously quite depressing, but very, very uplifting. Do you see Inuit developing an income stream from tourism in Canada? According to people I spoke to on the ground there, Inuit, yes. Great to hear, Mike. And, Phil, we couldn't do a best of without Baku. Oh, I know. This was my favourite, I think, out of all of them because not only did we have him, this incredibly musician and throat singer in the studio with us, uh, but we got to hear his amazing story. So he he was actually a you know professional musician in, in Mongolia. and a Philharmonic moved, level, wasn't he? Yeah, it? and had moved to Australia to be uh, with his wife who wanted to learn English. Um, she later went on to university and she's an accountant while uh, he stayed at home playing music until some sage advice from his English teacher. My teacher actually told me, if you play your music, Anywhere, everywhere, you have food. Yep. And then it's stuck in my mind. <laughs> That's actually yeah. I could do you know. I could play street, and then I don't know, uh, find a spot in Newtown. It's very noisy. But the first time people hear Mongolian music, they're really interested. Every people just stopping, listening, asking so many questions. Then I, I, I really don't understand what they're talking about. <laughs> just, just, <laughs> just yeah, smile. Just smile, and then what should I say now? Uh, yes or no? Yes or no? Maybe yes. <laughs> you know, that kind of, and then yeah, that just yeah, that just really really hard. So it's a big part of your culture, music. Yeah, gives a, a taste of the history. Because uh, in Mongolia, there's uh, lots of different ethnic groups. All ethnic groups have beautiful melodies. And the main instrument in Mongolia is called the Murung Hor. Moris means horse. Horis means fiddle. Horse fiddle or horse head fiddle or horse hair fiddle. Ah. Because the two strings made up from horse tail. Okay. And then bow is horse tail. Which may play with both, like horsetail with horsetail, only one instrument in the world. And there's a lots of, of singing, different type of different ethnic groups singing styles. And also, bird singing was one of the biggest, biggest thing in Mongolia. So do you train to be a throat singer or is it some, I mean, Phil, can you sing? Uh, not throat sing, but can you sing generally? <coughs> yes, but my children tell me to sharp all the yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. So I'm terrible so at it. So. so I'm totally tone deaf. So is it, is it, a, is it the case that you, you are naturally able to use your throat to create music? Yes, but you need it in lots of, lots of practice for 
when you when you start learn throat singing? Some of the uh, some of the songs, some of the throat singing goes on quite a long time. Mm. So obviously, it doesn't hurt. Then there must be. Is it a relaxing thing that you do, rather than a, a tension? Uh, depends on the songs, but mostly it's very relaxing. But you have to balance every whole of your body. Lots of tightness, lots of you know blood pressure happening here. I have to balance it. Same time, like you control like ten things, so and then and then you 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 make it like two notes. You have to make it. You know, I just these two chords. That must be pretty exhausting. <laughs> yeah. Listening to it, it can be quite meditative. Is it meditative to the performer? Yes, it's 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 because the all these throat singing styles mostly we the nomads, the Mongolians, they brought from their nature. All the styles like from the like a waterhole or like nice mountains or river sounds all came from there, and then. Most of the herders, when they're herding their animals, they hear lots of beautiful nature. It's a spiritual thing. Well, you've been so kind enough to not only come and educate us on throat singing, but you're going to demonstrate it for us with your, I call it a horse head fiddle, yeah. and uh, we'll be able to show a picture. It literally does have a horse head on it. It does. It's beautiful. It's gorgeous. What do you call it? Murung hor. Murung hor. I N Murung K H U U R Hor. Yeah, best if I don't try then. No. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well All let's right. let you get your ten steps together and um yeah, it'd be thrilling to hear you perform for us. Take it away. <laughs> one, two, one, two, three. <laughs> Go for it. You ready? Yes, well, absolutely, okay, we're ready. Yeah. <laughs>
it's just being in the room with that was just unbelievable, yeah. wasn't yeah. it? It's We've just, got some video of it actually. Can yep. we put that in show notes? Yeah, we'll yeah. pull that up again. No problem. Good. Next week we leave our best ofs behind and launch into the year seriously. Not that this wasn't serious, Phil. Uh, looking at women in travel. Okay. Uh, don't forget, you can subscribe to us on iTunes. You can download the Google Play app. And you can also yell out at Alexa and Google Home to play the World Nomads podcast. And that's exactly what they'll do. Bye. Bye. The World Nomads podcast. Explore your boundaries.